Welcome to the Sword and the Trial, podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Hey, thanks for listening to the Sword and the Trial today. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. We want to let you know we have a conference coming up December 5th through the 7th. Is that That's right? That's right. Yeah, December 6th is going to be an important day in that conference because we're going to release the long-anticipated film, by what standard? Yes. So, hey, come join us. There's still uh, opportunity to register, though space is limited, and we'd love to see you down here in December. Uh, we want to begin today by talking about something that's happening right here in our backyard. In our association uh, is First Baptist Church of Naples, and uh, recently we heard, I don't even remember how I caught wind of this, maybe through some kind of social media, that the pastoral staff there announced that uh, they had a man, Marcus Hayes, is that his name? Marcus Hayes, um, come and candidate to be the senior pastor of the church. Uh, He is a black man, and the church says you need 85-ish, I think, percent to have a man become the senior pastor. 85% vote of the congregation. Of the congregation. They only had 80% of that church vote for him, and the pastoral staff released that um, racial prejudice was involved in him not becoming the pastor of the church. And so they released one statement. I believe that they have released uh, a second statement. That's all somewhere. Right. Um, And this has caused um, some noise kind of throughout Southern Baptist life um, of what to do in this situation. So we thought we would talk a little bit about what happened and try to bring some biblical wisdom to it. We don't have all the details right up front. And so uh, we don't want to say too much, but we want to try to operate on what we, what we do know. Yeah. And and so a significant part of biblical wisdom is not answering a matter before you hear it and uh, recognizing the one who presents this case first seems right till another comes forward and questions him. So Proverbs 18 certainly should be in our mind. And it doesn't seem like that has uh, been operating in some of the declarations had been made by many people. A lot of people Mm -hmm. started screaming and saying, I can't believe this. This proves how rampant uh, racism is in the SBC. This church needs to be kicked out of the SBC. You can't heal racism with antibiotics. you got to amputate it. Uh, So this church needs to be removed. All all these kinds of things, judgments, have been made. When in reality, um, there are not many people who know the whole story. I was in Brazil when all of this broke. And uh, my phone just started blowing up with people saying, man, what's going on? And do you know about this? And then sending me stuff. And uh, that's how I got up to speed on it, at least initially. I've had a little bit of time to do some reading on it. Uh, But still, obviously, we don't know all of the information. Mm -hmm. I know what's been said publicly in the statements you referred to that have been released. I've been contacted privately, and I've had some engagements with some of the members uh, at First Baptist Naples as well. And uh, what they, some of the folks who took issue with the public statements, what they say is significantly different than the public statements. And so, you know, as is always true, you've, you've at least got two sides right. to the story. And so we need to be careful in making judgments based upon just one side of the story. Right. There's been uh, some talk at least about the, about discipline being um, um, administered in right. this situation. Uh, and so, Boy, my mind goes in a thousand directions, but one thing I've been trying to think about, we, we do know that a man candidated for the position. We do know that uh, the congregation did not affirm him according to their own constitution, and we have a testimony from the staff pastors that racial prejudice was certainly involved in the case and that there's going to be disciplinary measures that are taken. 
so I was thinking, what would we do here at our church? Yeah. You know, if this if something like this happened, well, I do think it's um it's a sign of a problem if um the pastoral staff has examined a guy, the elders have talked to this person and said presented him to the congregation, and then that congregation uh, says no. Well, something's off there right. the way that that right. church is flowing, and but that does happen, and if if that happens, you want to deal with it. But when it comes to the racial prejudice thing, I believe the announcement said that there was some kind of um, communications through email, through text, or through social, social media, media yeah. where these things were said. Well, uh, where there is sin, it is the job of those who see it to correct it and their brothers and sisters in Christ and yeah. to go. And if it's, if it's extremely flagrant, you know, we don't know. One of, the, one of the problems of the whole way this thing's shaking down is now we, we hear a charge, but we don't know any of the information. I'd, so, look, it could be that somebody is an absolute raging, arrogant racist. Right. You know, that in, and if we had what was said, uh, done, we would know that. Um, there, there are various forms of pride. It could be, well, no, there's, there is real racism here, but maybe it's not this flagrant thing, but it's this thing that does need to be mortified. Wherever it's at, that's the first step. Okay, what, what was actually done or said? The elders should examine that. They should think, in what context was this? Was this a private conversation that somebody said something? Was it, is someone actually putting this out on the internet and saying, you know, trying to um, stoke racism in yeah. others? Because um, there's going to be different approaches given what's going on there. Um, but Matthew 18 lays out the principles. You need to go to them and correct them, rebuke them if it's significant, grievous sin. You rebuke it and if he repents well then you won your brother and there needs to be reconciliation there needs to be appropriate uh avenues of restitution this needs to be made right with what you've done slander involved arrogance involved we'll make it right um if he doesn't listen we'll then take more with him and more with you establish the charge if he doesn't listen tell it to the church and then 1 Corinthians 5, we would cite 1 Corinthians 5 as another passage that gives us information about discipline. That is a, um, a more aggressive form. The Apostle Paul doesn't signal that it's a drawn-out process, but he's, this is grievous sin, and so it needs to be dealt with immediately. And we talk about that as well. I think that's appropriate. Um, so you gather up the church, and you remove this person in cases where it's grievous sin. So those are at least some of the... Um, guiding lights that would inform the way we would go about this. I imagine we would want to find out who actually was involved in the racism and go to them and address it directly with them. Yeah. Well, part of the, one of the things we ought to do and and hopefully can demonstrate in doing it, uh, procedures is that we need to be very cautious. We need to be very careful. And this thing's played out publicly, which is horrible. Uh, first of all, but getting information. And the social media aspect of it complicates it. But it doesn't complicate it beyond what sometimes we think. We've had to get our minds around this as a church and as elders, and so we've actually made this statement to the congregation more than once now that if you do something or say something on social media, it's not as if you're doing this in your private bedroom or Mm -hmm. you're doing this in your private kitchen. It's as if you're standing on the street corner doing this. And yet there's this mentality today, you know, you don't like what I'm saying, then get off my wall or get out, get out of my, my thread on Twitter or whatever it is. If you're doing something in a social media context, it's public. That's the way we look at it. And so we're, we're going to demystify social media in terms of how do we pastor people and care for them. And so, yes, if things like that were said on a 
Facebook post or Twitter post or some other form of social media, then that should be dealt with because that's a public type of uh, expression. And if it's sinful, it needs to be dealt with as public sin. The the discipline angle on this is interesting to me because I, I think, I don't know, but this is my strong estimation based on what I do know, that whatever happened is exposing perhaps some neglect in the way ecclesiology is done and has been done in that church. And I'm, I'm just suspicious of it. I'm not making an accusation. But how do you get to this point and not have mechanisms in place to deal with it? If a church practices discipline, that is, if it's careful with its membership and it takes seriously what it means to have a regenerate church membership, then people who come into that membership are going to be discipled from the very beginning with expectations of what it means to follow Christ and how do we follow Christ together in this church. And then, yeah, the default mode should be you're going to trust the leaders that God has given you in the church. Unless there's good reason not to, then you call attention to those reasons and you pull the emergency break and you don't go forward. And maybe that's what some of these members have done. But if the if there's a congregation where discipline is a discipleship, it's just a normal course of flow in how they live together, then this is not going to be uh, a train wreck issue. This is going to be an issue that arises where the normal ways of handling problems in the church are applied to it. And certainly if racism is there, then man, that needs to be dealt with. But it, racism is not a special kind of sin. It's not a sin that normal means of grace can't affect. It's a, a sin just like any other sin that needs to be addressed by the means of grace, which are, in this case, if you laid out in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, uh, steps of corrective discipline. And, and here's another concern I have, and some of the folks that have contacted me have indicated that you know, the way that people are being removed from the church is by email and just, hey, we, we want to let you know we're not your pastors anymore, you're not members here anymore, don't come back, uh, that type of thing. Well, that's not church discipline. And I've talked to pastors uh, for a long time, especially guys that are new in churches and maybe new in the ministry, and the church hasn't practiced discipline in generations. And they're saying, how do I do this? Man, we got this situation over here where this guy is sleeping with another man's wife, and how do we handle this? I'm, I'm just going to go to him and tell him he's out. I'm going to kick him out of the church. Well, I mean, I, I suppose you could do that, but that's not church discipline. That might be preacher discipline, but it's not church discipline. And the only way a church can practice discipline biblically is they got to be taught, they got to be educated about what this is and how this is not this, this is not just purging the roles. You know, I mean, Stalin purged the roles and uh, just getting rid of people. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a loving expression of concern over people who are caught up in sin and refuse to repent. And we do this not so we can get rid of them. We do this so that they might, as 1 Corinthians 5 says, be handed over to the devil and be taught not to sin so that their soul might be saved in the day of Christ. So I, I think a lot of those kinds of issues ought to be brought to the surface right now, and not just in First Baptist Naples, but in every church. This is an opportunity for every Baptist church mm -hmm. to take stock of how, what would we do in this case. Right, yeah, I mean, um, trials will come upon the church, um, heresies will come upon the church, Sin is going to come about in the congregation. It has it happened in the Bible. It's happened throughout all church history. Praise God, he's given us his word, and we need to be praying for First Baptist Church Naples. Pray for um, their pastoral staff. Pray yeah. for those who are in the congregation uh, on kind of all ish, sides of this issue. Pray for those who have um, 
given into racism right. and say God would cause him to repent. Pray for this Marcus Hayes and his family yeah. that's now yeah, um, this very public situation uh, that they, by the Spirit of God, would discern what's in the Word and say, okay, let's, let's really follow it. So when we come back, we want to talk about a book that we actually have just uh, reissued called um, Heirs of the Reformation. Heirs of the Reformation. Jim McColdrick. And I can assure you, I don't want to go the way of any organization that says, we think critical race theory and intersectionality are good tools to use. And the folks that want us to believe that, uh, they got, I, they're going to have to do a lot of explaining to me to convince me because I just don't, I, I think it was disingenuous. Can you use them for analytical tools? Yeah, they've been used, used for that. Is that the way most people use them today? Not at all. Not at all. Welcome back to the Sword and the Trial here in the second segment of our podcast. We want to talk about um, a book called Heirs of the Reformation. Heirs of the Reformation by James McGoldrick. Yeah. What's it about? It's about people who are heirs of the Reformation, <laughs> particularly Good Baptists. Title. Yeah, that's right. Good title. Um, it's a study in Baptist origins, and uh, this is fascinating. You and I were just talking about this a moment ago. Uh, growing up, what did you learn about Baptist and Baptist history and where Baptist came from? Anything in particular? I just didn't learn anything about Baptist. Nothing. So you weren't taught one way or the other. You just were Baptist. Grew up in a Baptist church, but wasn't taught anything much about okay. Baptist. And what about, uh, I mean, were you talking about Catholics at all? Not really. Methodists, Presbyterians? No. You had friends that were Catholics? Church history wasn't a big thing, but no. Um, uh, not, not a whole lot of Catholic friends, I guess. Okay. At least all some. Right. So, did, did you think of yourself as a Protestant, or do you remember? Pretty much. I think so. Okay. You know, when I was growing up, they, we used to have to fill out these forms, and you, you had to check your religion on there, and of course, the options were Protestant, Catholic, uh, I forget, maybe something else, or, or nothing, and I would always write in Baptist, you know, because we weren't Protestants. I was taught we were not Protestants. We go back to John the Baptist, and those Protestants were doing something good, but they were wrong here. Those Catholics were doing a lot bad, and they might have had some good things over there. But we Baptists, we've had it straight from the days of John the Baptist in the River Jordan. Same name. Yeah, same name. I mean, you know, it's right there in the Bible. You don't have John the Methodist. You don't have John the Presbyterian. You got John the Baptist. So that was my just kind of way of thinking until I began to study history. And I remember reading, I think Tom Nettles had me read in uh, Baptist History class, The Trail of Blood by, um, by B.H. Carroll's brother. And that Trail of Blood is, a, is designed to show this history from the first century to the what then was the present century, the, the 19th, early 20th century, of how Baptists have organically existed. Mm. And... Yet in that trail of blood, man, you got some groups that they may have called upon professing Christians or those who profess Christ to be baptized, but they didn't believe that Jesus was God, you know, or they, they didn't believe in the triune God. And so they, they were heretics, but they had this little deal in common with Baptists that they believed that babies shouldn't be sprinkled or baptized. 
And that began to, to create some dissonance in my own thinking. And of course, you know, I study further those issues. I became convinced that the trail of blood and that kind of idea is not sustainable historically. There's still people today that do sustain that view of Baptist successionism. But what uh, Jim does is to demonstrate that, no, he, he takes those groups, he looks at what they actually believe and shows that, you, you know, they're not Christian, many of them, and here's the thesis, not just of the book, but here's just something good for Baptists to think about, that in order to be a Baptist, you got to be a Christian. Now, at least theoretically, we know there are a lot of Baptists who aren't Christians because there are going to be all kind of folks that Jesus said will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, and yet he'll say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And that will include people who have their names on Baptist rolls. There's no doubt about that. But the thinking and the, the theology of what it means to be a Baptist is built upon the foundation of being a Christian. So the Baptist distinctives that we have that make us different than our Methodist Presbyterian friends are built upon the essentials of what it means to be in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have the essentials, then you know, it doesn't really matter how much of the distinctives you emphasize and you have. Mm-hmm. And as the book um, title describes, to be a Baptist, you not only have to be a Christian, but you have to be Reformed. <laughs> Since you, they are heirs, heirs of, of the, the Reformation. Reformation. And that the whole story is so important about where we came from. You know? It is. There's, this, there's a track, not from John the Baptist, but from John Calvin. There is a <laughs> track from the Reformers and then into England well, with Puritanism and from out of that movement, the Baptists that came forth, that we really are sons of the Reformation. Right. So um, a history that has uh, been lost, as I mentioned when you asked, you know, what did you learn about Baptists? Well, I didn't learn anything. Yeah. I had no clue, <laughs> you know, um, I, my own coming to a reformed understanding of doctrine uh, was not through the 1689 confession. There were other, there were other um, avenues, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, I discovered, oh my goodness, there's this great history there. Yeah. So, what, one of the things that is taught pretty commonly is that Baptists come from Anabaptists. In fact, there's a seminary that, up until recently, was giving itself to that uh, thesis, and they were going to make that great again. The idea that Baptists came from Anabaptists. And historically, it's just a tough sell. I mean, if you're going to do honest historical research, you're going to have to back off of that. Even even people who disagree or who don't like the fact that Baptists came out of the Protestant movement, nevertheless, honestly acknowledge the historical record is pretty thin in terms of how much Anabaptists influenced the modern rise of Baptists. And so McGoldrick goes after that as well. And he does show that, that Anabaptists have their uh, descendants as well, but they're mostly in kind of the brethren type of stream of things and Mennonite type of stream. So this is a good book and even better news, Heirs of the Reformation is freshly reprinted by founders and so it is on sale still at the pre-pub price. This is a $16 book and you can get it up until the middle of this month. I think it's maybe the 15th or 16th or something like that. You can look on our website and see for just $10. But you have to go and order it here in the next few days to get that price. Uh, Heirs of the Reformation, Study in Baptist Origins by James McGoldrick. So highly commend it to you. When we come back, we're going to be considering the command we find in James chapter 1 and verse 19 that we should be quick to hear. I want to invite you to the upcoming Southeast Founders Conference It will be held in Cape Coral, Florida, December the 5th through the 7th. The theme of the conference is the law and the gospel, which is a vitally important issue in our day. 
Dr. Tom Nettles will be our keynote speaker. He'll be joined by Jeff Johnson, who's a pastor in Conway, Arkansas, as well as Jared Longshore and myself. In addition to the regular conference teaching, we're going to have two special events at this year's conference, and I really want to encourage you to come and be a part of these events. We're going to have an open warehouse where you'll get a chance to tour through the Founders facilities and see kind of how we do things, including the facilities here in the Founders studio. And then we're also going to have the premier showing of the Founders Synodoc by what standard? God's world, God's rules. Would love for you to come and be a part of it. Space is limited. You can get more information at founders.org. Let me encourage you to go there and register today. Welcome back to the Sword of the Trial. Here in the third segment, we'd like to talk about the Word of God, particularly commands that we see therein. And today we're looking at James chapter 1 and verse 19. What's that passage say, Tom? Well, I'm hesitant to speak. <laughs> it says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. And slow to anger. And so we want to break those up. Just start with quick to hear. The Bible tells us that we should be quick to hear. When, when we're in a conversation with somebody or even as we go through our lives, um, we should be on the ready to listen. And, you know, the old phrase that God's given you two ears and one <laughs> mouth. Boy, it really is. That's just general revelation yeah. underscoring James chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, it's, it's almost as if there is a uh, tendency in man to mishear, yeah. you know, to think, well, okay, I've heard a little bit of the, this, this story, and so I understand. Like, I, I understand what has happened, you know. And then, okay, well, no, I really need to be quick to listen. I need to have both ears wide open to saying, okay, um, what is being communicated? What is not being communicated? And um, let me receive what's being said. Yeah. And, and even just the willingness to listen. I mean, I think we've lost that in our day. We are so quick to rush to judgment and we do it as if we have some kind of Gnostic insight. So something happens and immediately, I feel like I have all that I need to make a definitive judgment. Mm. And therefore, this is it. More information comes, well, that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I know what I know. I know. I see it. I've been here before. We know how these things go. All that stuff comes up. And it's as if the Bible doesn't say a word about being quick to listen. I mean, but the Proverbs are filled with this kind of admonition as well. Proverbs twelve twenty five says, a wise man listens to advice. Mm. Just listen. So it's a general principle of living well in God's world that you would be humble enough to take time to consider what someone has to say, especially somebody who might be closer to a situation or have more opportunity to know things than you do. Yeah. You know, it's not that it's not that I would want to set it up saying that anytime you take a snapshot of um a group of men, the one speaking is the prideful one and the one mm-hmm. listening is the humble one. Well, it's not, it doesn't really cut down like that. Um, even so, there is something about being the one to listen, you know, being silent and listening rather than speaking, um, that it's it's this passive thing. It's acknowledging that in, in many ways, I'm not God. God is the God who speaks. He spoke the world into being. He's spoken to us through his son. And um, I, I know I'm the kind of person that needs to sit and to actually take information in to realize I don't understand everything that I'm supposed to understand. My knowledge is not exhaustive. And so I, I'm going to do well by taking in more information than I presently have, recognizing I'm finite, recognizing there's all sorts of things that I don't know out there. 
I really should be quick to listen. Go on, you I'm just listening. So good, man. <laughs> well done. So everybody, model Pastor Tom and be quick to hear. Thanks for listening to the Sword and the Trowel today. Hey, thanks for being quick to hear the Sword and the Trowel. Yeah. And uh, don't we, forget our trailer, our our preview has dropped. Yes. So if you haven't seen the 14 minute preview, which is the the second release that we've made for the founders film by what standard, go check it out. Uh, today we'll put we'll put a link at the end of uh, this episode so you can see it but it is dynamite hey we also want to tell you about a special opportunity that we have through thanksgiving uh, through the generous support of one of our Mm -hmm. um, um, supporters for the upcoming film by what standard we have a matching gift up to eleven thousand five hundred dollars i think all of this is online but if you give between now and thanksgiving Whatever you give is going to be doubled. It's going to be matched. And so what an opportunity to steward uh, money well. So check out founders.org and the Founders Synodoc by what standard and join us as we uh, seek to produce this film.